Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. Although perhaps I want to backpedal a little bit on that word completion, because it's certainly the fulfillment but Judaism still has a mysterious role to play between the first and second comings, which is something I sometimes talk about on this show. So it's not completely obsolete, but it has been fulfilled in the Catholic Church. Now, we, of course, have just come from Easter, and we're in this uh, very special period between Easter and Pentecost, when Jesus was on the earth with his disciples after having... Um, resurrected. And of course, the next big, big celebration of the resurrection, so to speak, or the victory of Jesus is the ascension, which is, of course, a few weeks off. But I thought I would kind of dedicate the show to the ascension in the sense that I want to spend the show talking about the second coming. Because of course, we all know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, I'll in fact, read the read the uh, short passage. So when the disciples had come together with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So that is, um, in some sense, the first um, announcement. Jesus announced a number of times, actually, the second coming, that he would come again. And this is the first announcement to the disciples from a third party that Jesus was going to come again. So there's obviously this this um, kind of symmetry between the ascension when Jesus went up into heaven and the second coming when he's going to come back down from heaven on earth, but not as he did the first time to suffer and die but in fact, to wrap things up on earth, um, life on earth will end. Um, there'll be the second coming. There'll be the general judgment. There'll be the end of life on earth, and there will be nothing left. There will be no existence except, essentially, the existence of heaven for those of us who are fortunate enough to have made it, and unfortunately, the eternity of hell for those who aren't fortunate enough to have made it. I shouldn't use the word fortunate, actually, because it's dogma that all mankind, all men receive sufficient grace to be saved. So anyone who isn't saved um, has received sufficient grace to be saved. He just hasn't responded to it um, adequately. Anyway, so what do we know about the second coming? We know it will happen. We definitely know it will happen. 
just have to remember the creed um, every time we're at Mass, every time we say the rosary. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so that is, Jesus will come again in glory. That's the second coming when he returns to judge the living and the dead. That is the general judgment, and his kingdom will have no end. That's essentially the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom that will replace life on earth as we know it. I'm going to be talking about all of these elements in the course of this show. Um, this is just kind of like a little introduction, but I'll be talking about everything I mentioned. I'll be talking about the the new Jerusalem, what that means, what what it means that life on earth will end, what it means, the general judgment, and so forth and so on. Now, so we know it will happen. Uh, we know what will happen when it happens. Um, we are given signs by which we should be able to have a sense of when it's about to happen, although we won't know the day and the hour. I'll be talking about all of this explicitly in a few moments. We know that after the second coming happens, it will be unspeakably, unspeakably wonderful. I'll be reading all the relevant scripture quotes. We know that we are to pray for it. Um, uh, again, I'll be reading the quotes that, that make that clear. And um, that it will be preceded by great tribulation, by a great deal of distress and suffering on earth immediately before the second coming. Those are all things we know about it. Now, um, I, I'll just go on, actually. Um, the, why am I talking about the second coming? Because it's necessary to make sense out of everything else. The entire purpose of life on earth, the entire purpose of creation, of the entire physical universe. It was created for only one reason by God, which was to create... Um, I, I, that may be an overstatement. I was created only for one reason, but the primary central reason for which God created the entire universe was to create immortal human souls to be with him for all eternity in unimaginable bliss, for him to love and to love him to be in that union of love for all eternity between God and all of the saved human souls. That is the purpose of creation. He didn't create it for its own sake. One could argue, he, he, one could argue that um, he created it uh, to produce beauty. You could argue that he created it um, to express his, his wisdom and so forth. That's why I want to shade that a little bit. But the central purpose was for the creation of human souls to be with him forever in heaven. When the proper number of human souls have been created and are there in heaven with him, or soon to be in heaven with him, the purpose of the created universe goes away. The created universe, or, or certainly what we know of as life, goes away. There'll be no more births, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more aging, there'll be no more work. It'll essentially be entirely heaven. And the the number of souls that God intended to create will have been created. And so the entire world, which was created in order to be able to create those human souls, will have lost its purpose, so to speak, and will be destroyed. Now, I'd better get to the scripture verses pretty quick, huh? because this stuff sounds, sounds pretty... Um, Hmm, almost sounds a little bit bizarre. 
but let me go in a little bit of order here. So, okay. So by, as Catholics, we know from dogma, and it's also apparent in scripture also, the dogma is based on scripture, that four things have to happen before the second coming and the end of the world. I will read a paragraph from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The title of the paragraph is, is Signs of the General Judgment. Here's the quote. By the way, the Catechism of the Council of Trent was from the 16th century, uh, right after the Protestant revolt. The signs of the general judgment. The sacred scriptures inform us that the general judgment will be preceded by these three principal signs. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world, a widespread falling away from the faith, and the coming of the Antichrist. This gospel of the kingdom, says our Lord, shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall the consummation come. The apostle also admonishes us that we are not to be seduced by anyone, as if the day of the Lord were at hand, for unless there comes a revolt first, and the man of sin be revealed, the judgment will not come. That's a reference to the Antichrist. So, the three things that the Council of Trent dogmatically established have to precede the second coming are the gospel has to be preached throughout the world, there has to be what's referred to as a great apostasy, a widespread falling away from the faith, and the appearance of the Antichrist. Uh, I'll talk about all these things more later. And uh, we know a fourth thing, also from the Gospels and also from the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674 says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. The fourth thing that has to happen before the second coming is there has to be a widespread conversion of the Jews. Uh, repeating that short clause from paragraph 674, the glorious Messiah's coming, okay, so the return of Jesus in glory, is suspended at every moment of history. In other words, is waiting for the moment until his recognition by all Israel, until this widespread conversion of the Jews. So what do we know from this? The world is not meant to last forever. You needn't worry if you find out that the sun is going to burn out in so many million years or the universe will run down because of entropy in so many billion years or even that life on earth may become unsustainable in so many years because of one thing or another thing. Because in fact, this world was never intended to last forever. This world was only intended to last until the correct number of souls have been created to be with God forever in heaven. Now, another reason to f be very conscious of the second coming, the fact of the second coming, is because let's just imagine that we might be living, somebody will be living in the um, years immediately preceding the second coming. We know from scripture, and I will read those scriptures, I promise, even in this hour, I'll read them. Uh, we know from the scriptures that there will be such tribulation and suffering and chaos and disasters and wars and plagues and earthquakes um, and the powers of nature will be shaken and so forth that had never been seen before. In other words, there will be unprecedented disaster. So imagine we're living in those times or imagine living in those times. You look around, you see the world going to hell in a handbasket. What's the natural inclination is to say, Oh, where's God in all of this? God must have fallen asleep, or he must not exist, or he must have stopped paying attention to mankind. 
when we know about the second coming and what has to precede the second coming, we will have exactly the opposite response, which is the worst things get in the world, as bad as they could get. The very worst meaning that it would have is, oh boy, the second coming is around the corner. So it doesn't mean that God's plan is not unfolding. It means that God's plan is unfolding because he's already described all of this and we know what it's about and we know what it leads to. And in fact, I think a very good case can be made that no people, no human souls in created history will be as blessed as those souls who um, are living at the time of the second coming and are able to maintain their fidelity to God until the second coming. Those will be the most Blessed souls, I believe, more blessed than the apostles, more blessed than the people who were alive in the time of Jesus and were aware of the ministry of Jesus and were close to Jesus at that time. That was a tremendous gift and a tremendous blessing, but I think the case can be made that it will be an even greater gift, an even greater blessing to be one of those people who are alive at the time of the second coming. So, that's a good reason to pay attention to this all and to know about it and to pray for it, by the way. So let me read some of the key passages that I have alluded to so far. First of all, from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we have a very vibrant description of the end of the world and the replacement of the world by the new Jerusalem, by the heavenly Jerusalem. So just reading chapter 21 of Revelation Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with sulfur and fire, which is the second death. So we have this very beautiful image, this very beautiful promise that when when this world is replaced by the world to come, we will essentially be not only back in the Garden of Eden, but in an infinitely improved form of the Garden of Eden. Um, no, no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. The former things will have passed away, and we will be in this unspeakable, intimate love relationship, frankly, with God. And this is something, needless to say, to hope for fervently. Um, and uh, I will have to point out, because Jesus himself points it out, that um, uh, that all of these promises are seem to be dependent on our response to grace. And they're not 
uh, universal. They're not guaranteed for all of humanity. Um, if we live up to the grace that's given us, we will end up there. And if we don't, there is certainly this danger that seems to be being underlined here. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, and so forth, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So, you know, I'm not going to go too far down that road, but the implications are very clear. Um, this won't be for everyone. There actually is an alternative. Now, more about the end of the world is in um, the second letter of St. Peter, of course, the first pope. And um, there are some more keys there. So let me read those verses. I'll, uh, 2 Peter 3, I'll start with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. You are to live out lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will melt, the elements will melt with fire. So let me just um, go through that a little bit. There are a lot of neat little keys here, okay? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. We won't know. The mankind as a whole will not be prepared for it. It will surprise everyone. There's another passage in the Gospels where I believe it's Jesus speaking who says, As it was in the days of Noah, when men were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, when the flood came, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. In other words, mankind will be blithely going around its business and the second coming will come like a thief in the night. As St. Peter says here. And then the heavens will pass away and the elements will be dissolved with fire. Okay? So this isn't just a description of like the flood was a flood upon the earth, right? And all the living things on the earth drowned in the flood and were destroyed, except, of course, for the things on Noah's Ark. So um, the things on the earth were destroyed, but the earth itself wasn't destroyed. And certainly the physical matter of the universe wasn't destroyed. But look at what St. Peter is saying here. The elements will be dissolved with fire. And a couple of verses later, he says, the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. We know what elements are, right? Elements are the atomic structure, right? You have, you have oxygen, you have iron, you have mercury, you have plutonium, you have elements. They're, they're assemblies of, I'm showing my ignorance, but they're assemblies of electrons and protons and neutrons into atoms. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Okay, so here's my image of what this is going to be like. This is something that really happened to me. I used to be a movie projectionist when I was in university, and I actually was licensed as a, as a, as a movie projectionist. And in those days, the projectors in the projection booth, this is, you know, commercial movie theater. So, you know, it's a huge screen, whatever, 30, 40 feet wide. Um, you know, there may be 50, 100, 200 people in the theater. And there is a very, very, very powerful projector in the back in the projection booth, you know, right under the ceiling. In those days, electric bulbs weren't powerful enough to provide the light to project the movie. So they, these projectors had what was called carbon arc lamps, where two pieces of carbon were placed maybe about a half an inch apart with a tremendous current flowing through them. So a spark was continually sparking between the two 
um, electrodes of, of um, carbon. And that spark was actually the light that shone through the film and made the movie visible. And it was a very delicate thing because the movie film was very flammable in those days, okay? And if you weren't very good at what you did, you could let the spark get too big or too close to the film or the film move too slowly and the film would actually catch on fire. So I'm projecting in this movie theater one day. Uh, it's actually a Western on the screen. And I'm not looking at the projector. I'm looking at the screen, right, at the movie. So I'm watching these cowboys ride into town and they ride into town and then the buildings, you know, these, you know, what is these Western towns, you know, these saloon buildings, these wooden buildings. And I'm watching the movie and okay, the buildings start burning. So I think this is part of the movie, you know, the buildings are going up in flames, but then the, the, the earth starts going up in flames. The, the dirt road starts going up in flames and everything starts going up in flames. The sky starts going up in flames. And I realized that what happened was that I had let the film catch on fire. So it was actually the film in the projector, which was burning. Okay. But in the beginning of seeing this, I thought it was the, the movie, you know, the image in the movie screen, you know, the, what was being projected was a picture of just the town burning. That's my picture of what it's going to be. It's not that everything on earth will go up in flames. I believe that, that the elements will be dissolved in fire, that the, that the um, physical structure of physical existence will actually be dissolved. And, okay, this is speculative. You know, you know, you know you're, don't necessarily believe it. But when I read these words of the letter of Peter, it was very suggestive. The elements will be dissolved with fire. The elements will melt with fire. So in any case, everything that we know of in the, I believe, in the physical universe will disappear, will be dissolved. I believe the physical universe itself, space-time, I believe, will be dissolved. But that's another topic. So anyway, um, so then go on with this. Uh, so let me go back to that verse where I got down that little bit of a, a sidetrack. We are to live out lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, okay? We are to hasten the day of the, uh, the coming of the day of God. We are called upon not only to um, live in the total confidence that this is going to happen with faith in the correctness of Catholic dogma and scripture, but we are actually going, supposed to pray for it to come sooner rather than later. We are supposed to hasten the coming of the day of God. And of course, how can we do that other than praying? There's another passage in which Jesus himself says, um, I, I'm going to be reading it actually, so I'll be reading it more precisely. But he says, um, things are going to be so bad in those days that unless those days were shortened, even the elect would be lost. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So again, um, how do we shorten those days by praying that Jesus come back soon? And when I take a musical break, if I do take a musical break, I will be playing a very beautiful recording of a, a religious community chanting, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. We're supposed to pray, come Lord Jesus. That's one reason I'm giving this little little uh, talk today, why I'm choosing this topic. So anyway, back to that verse, I keep getting bogged down. We are to live out lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will, man, will melt with fire. According to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, no sin, no suffering, no misbehavior, heaven, nothing but heaven, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. This is good news. This isn't bad news. It's not going to be easy, but it's still good news. Okay, so now let me read, because uh, what I've been trying to do is, is lay the groundwork and then, um, and, read, and then afterwards read the scriptures, which are the basis for that groundwork. So let me read um, the, uh, the words of, the words of uh, from the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 24. And um, I believe that the words of Jesus, that's why I'm hesitating. I do believe that the words of Jesus, I'll look that up um, during the short musical break just to confirm that. But I really do think it's the words of Jesus. So let me read them. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the desolating, the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas, for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no man would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Lo, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Lo, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the, heaven, not even the angels of heaven nor the sun, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That is, um, that's that passage. Uh, I cut it off a little early, but 
um, these are the notes I made, so I have to stop there. So look at all these really neat things who are in here, okay? First of all, this is the description of the um, Great Tribulation. As, um, as he says, uh, since the beginning of the world until the end, there's never been, never been suffering like this. Uh, bear with me a moment. I'm going to actually look up the um, uh, look it up in the in the uh, in the gospel itself, so that I can go a little bit further with it. So this these are of course the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus um, during Holy Week, after he was uh, teaching in the temple. On his way back to Bethany, he stopped on the Mount of Olives and he gave this instruction to his disciples privately. And that's what I was reading. He was giving them this description of what was to happen and the um, the end of the world. And because I cut it off in the notes I have, let me continue that last sign, that last line rather. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one is taken and one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then, in fact, he goes into the parable of the um, the master who goes away and leaves his servant in charge of his household, and the servant, you know, misbehaves, and the master comes back unexpectedly, and things do not turn out well for the servant. That passage was again from uh, Matthew chapter twenty-four. So anyway, so that's that passage, and look at what he's saying. He's saying, yes, no one knows the day or the hour. It's supposed to be a surprise, but nonetheless, from the fig tree learnest lesson, you know how to look at the fig tree and tell that summer is near. So when you see the signs, that the signs of the times, the signs that are to precede the second coming, don't be hypocrites. You should know enough to be able to recognize them, just as you recognize that when the fig tree goes into blossom, that summer is near. So he's saying, on the one hand, you don't know the day or the hour, but on the other hand, you know, you really ought to, you know, be paying attention to what I tell you and recognize the signs, which is why those signs were given in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Why they were given dogmatically is precisely so that no one will be ignorant of what those signs are, so to speak. Um, the other thing that is worth paying attention to here, many things are worth paying attention to. One is that the days had to be shortened because the tribulation will be so great that the elect would be lost if those days weren't shortened. But for the sake of the elect, those days are shortened. Another reason to pray for it for the second coming. And also that the world will be full of false Christs and false prophets before the second coming. So uh, be suspicious. Be suspicious of... Um, prophets who, you know, say that they know special stuff about what's happening or what's about to happen. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm just, you know, reading the scripture and, and kind of talking about what it says. And there's no question it says 
false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's clearly a warning to be cautious. Um, so um, I guess that's probably all the time I have for that, and I'm already halfway through the show. So uh, because I like to take a short break, and because we're halfway through, and because I've been trying to exhort everyone to uh, pray for the second coming to happen soon, um, I am going to now play that beautiful chant that I mentioned earlier um, that is um, that is uh, a repetition, essentially, of Come Lord Jesus, which, by the way, is almost the very last words of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. I think it's the second to last um, verse of the book of Revelation. So here is, uh, the group is called Harpa Dei, and there's a lot of their music on YouTube uh, if you are attracted to it. I, I find it very beautiful. Here goes. Thank you. 
Well, I, I hope you like that. I will uh, I'll close the show with, I think, um, I'll close out the show with, uh, with again, that, with a, uh, that chant. Again, it was Harpadei singing in many languages, Come Lord Jesus. Uh, there was one language there I couldn't identify, but I certainly could identify Spanish, English, Latin, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Maranatha, of course, being the Aramaic. Uh, the Aramaic. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Back to the body of the show, I guess. It's kind of a little hard to come, come down from that chant, but I guess I have to. So... Okay, uh, I mentioned at the outset of the show the things that we know have to precede the second coming. I've gone through a number of them. I've gone through the, um, uh, of course, the second coming itself, the return of Jesus, the end of life on earth, so to speak, the replacement of life on earth, the earthly Jerusalem, so to speak, with the heavenly Jerusalem, and the, um, the great tribulation uh, we talked about a little bit. Um, now, the gospel has to be preached throughout the world. I didn't talk about that, although it was actually in the passage from Matthew where um, uh, uh, it starts out saying, and Jesus starts out saying, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he says very clearly that it is a, it's a, uh, 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 what's the word? It's a mile, it's a mile marker. It's a mile post that shows that you're on the road to the second coming when the gospel is preached throughout all nations. And I think a good case can be made that never before in history has the gospel been preached throughout the entire world like it has now. I mean, starting with the advent probably of radio, but by now you have not only radio and television, you have satellite television, you have satellite radio, you have the internet, um, it's hard to imagine, uh, I mean, there, you know, 50 years ago, I'm sure there were areas in Africa, areas in, in China that had not been reached by the gospel, areas in the Middle East, because I know there are, that in some Arab countries, uh, Muslim countries, I should say, they tried very hard to keep people, I mean, keep Bibles out. I, I still, um, I don't know if it's a capital offense, but it's still a serious criminal offense to bring a Bible, a Christian Bible into Saudi Arabia, for instance. But today with modern technology, you know, those barriers have pretty much fallen down and you don't have to be a missionary smuggling at the risk of your life, a suitcase full of Bibles into Saudi Arabia, because basically people have internet access and so forth. So one can make a good case that the gospel has been preached throughout the whole world. Now, there was another sign that has to precede the second coming, which I didn't mention yet, so I'm going to turn to that now, which is the great apostasy, the widespread falling away from the faith. Um, this, this is dogma, so it's not open to question. It's based in part on the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, when he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith left on the face of the earth? In other words, by the, when the second coming happens, how bad will things be? Will he even find faith left on the face of the earth? Now, one could make an argument that what we're seeing now in the Western world, in the world at large, even in the church, you know, might look a little bit like the great apostasy. I mean, I mean, um, 
Europe. Remember, Europe used to be the Holy Roman Empire. You used to not be able to be a king anywhere in Europe unless you were crowned by the Pope. Um, Christendom, it was called Christendom. I mean, it was, it was the secular world under the reign of Christ. And now with the European Union and their constitution, they wouldn't even acknowledge any historical Christian foundation to Europe, much less, you know, kind of a spiritual Christian foundation to Europe. Uh, we all know the statistics of the uh, drop in uh, mass attendance, the drop in belief in the real presence in the Eucharist, um, the, um, the drop in the number of religious and priests and seminarians, um, the watering down of the teaching of the faith, even within the church sometimes, and so forth. So I don't want to go down that road too far. I'm Johnny come lately to the church. Remember, I'm a Jewish convert. It's not for me to point fingers at, you know, at, at um, people who have been Catholic for far longer than I have. But um, again, one could wonder what the great apostasy will look like if it, isn't, it doesn't look like what we're seeing now. But let me read some of the scripture passages that refer to the great apostasy. Uh, I'll read uh, from Second uh, Timothy first, Second Timothy chapter three. But understand this: that in the last days will come times of stress, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, fierce, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. Anyway, that's a reference to the great apostasy. I, I'm not here to point fingers. But, <laughs> but, 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 I mean, you know, again, we'll just let one's imagination, um, you know, kind of uh, flow with this a little bit and, and, and think about what we see. By the way, um, uh, I know I'm not going to go there. However, the fabric of society, I'll just leave, put it this way. The fabric of society, I am not ancient, but I am pretty old. And um, when I began my working career in, in business, I was a you know business school professor and then I worked as a consultant in business the moral standards were far higher in business than they were 20 years later when I had to stop actually being a management consultant because um, things which were shameful when I had begun had become de rigueur, had become required by the time I left, such as lying, lying to clients, making up stories, um, uh, making promises you had no intention to keep, other people making promises to you they had no intention to keep. This was laughed off by the time I left, and it was considered shameful when I started. My very last consulting client um, had promised to pay me a certain amount, and um, when I finished the project, I asked for the payment, and he literally laughed. He laughed, and he said, you didn't think I was really going to pay you that, did you? You didn't, re you didn't really take me seriously. You didn't think that I was going to do what I promised to do, did you? In other words, he wasn't sh ashamed of it at all. It was like, you know, how could you have been so gullible as to have believed me? That was not around 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Anyway, 
Uh, then now I'll go to First Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So again, this is an apostasy, right? People will uh, depart from the faith because they will give heed to deceitful doctrines. Um, I know that um, in this little ministry that I have, I sometimes, this happened just actually this week, so I'm very aware of it, I get condemned by somebody who considers themselves a good Catholic for having suggested that um, homosexuality is deviant, that it's, it's not normal, and that there's an element of degeneracy to it, that something is not working right in the case of homosexuality, and that homosexuality is not, excuse me, um, I'm not talking about same-sex attraction. I'm talking about engaging in homosexual sexual acts is not pleasing to God. And this person was listening to me because they take themselves seriously as a Catholic. But obviously, they had a very different doctrine that they were giving heed to, a doctrine which said all of those principles in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in uh, church teaching and dogma are somehow... Uh, incorrect and to be wiped away. So anyway, that it could be an example of giving heed to deceitful spirits. Um, now, so those are a couple of the quotes about um, the great apostasy. Um, there's a, a deeper basis for the teaching about the great apostasy, which has to do with the full number of the Gentiles having come in. That's in Romans 11, 25. And in, uh, in Luke 21, Jesus talks about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Um, never mind. Let me back up from that dead end and, and get back on the main highway. Um, okay, the last, the last of these signs that are given in the Catechism of the Council of Trent that I will mention is the last of the uh, four that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. And it's the last one that I'll be mentioning in the show because I'm out of time, but it's also the last of four, so it's time to end the show. That is the coming of the Antichrist. And that is, again, dogma, that there will be a world ruler who will essentially demand that people give him the honor and the authority that belongs only to God. And let me read several of the scripture citations that are the basis for the dogma about the coming of the Antichrist. First, uh, St. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, it's, he's talking about the second coming, you'll see. Um, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, that's the second coming, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Um, and, um, huh. oh gosh, I wasn't going to do this, but I will do this. 
I came across, don't take me too seriously right now, okay? But I, I just couldn't, I can't resist. Um, I came across, um, we, we probably all know that there's an extremely wealthy Hungarian Jewish man who's quite elderly right now, one of the wealthiest men in the world, probably one of the five wealthiest men in the world, um, who is the single strongest force trying to destroy the nation state, trying to bring about the one world government, trying to undermine the uh, religion, and in particular the Catholic Church, through through hundreds of uh, non-governmental organizations and so-called charities and and organizations dedicated to basically tearing down Christendom and tearing down nation states, uh, tearing down the current order to be replaced by a uh, one world government. I think we all know who we're talking about. And um, anyway, so let me read some quotes um, from a man named George Soros. Uh, And these are all quotes from him from a New Yorker interview and from his own memoirs, okay? God in the Old Testament has a number of attributes, you know, like invisible. I was pretty invisible. Benevolent. I was pretty benevolent. All-seeing. I tried to be all-seeing, so I was playing it out. If truth be known, I carried some rather potent messianic fantasies with me from childhood, which I felt I had to control, otherwise I might end up in the loony bin. It's a sort of disease when you consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything. But I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out. I have always harbored an exaggerated view of my self-importance. To put it bluntly, I fancied myself as some kind of God. My sense of reality was strong enough to make me realize that these expectations were excessive and I kept them hidden as a guilty secret. This was a source of considerable unhappiness throughout much of my adult life. As I made my way in the world, reality came close enough to my fantasy to allow me to admit my secret at least to myself. Needless to say, I feel much happier as a result. Anyway, it sounds like a picture of somebody who's putting themselves in the place of God and having those fantasies and getting a little confused about it. So let me just close the show, so to speak by reading the last passage I want to read from the book of Revelation, which is about the Antichrist. Um, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon his horns and a blasphemous name upon its heads. Men worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. That's why it's associated with one world government. Authority was given to the Antichrist over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. That means a single world authority. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, that was slain. Um, I will stop there because I've run out of time. But um, um, uh, yes, I will stop there because I said I'll stop there. And I have run out of time. So anyway, this has been an exhortation to be aware that the second coming is going to happen, to be aware 
that life between birth and death is not the point, really, of anything, really, except its implications for eternity. And in a kind of parallel way, life on earth in this earthly Jerusalem is actually not the point of creation. The point of creation is the heavenly Jerusalem and life that is going to follow the second coming. And also, I've been giving this teaching as an exhortation to uh, pray, come Lord Jesus, to pray that Jesus returns soon, perhaps even if we should be so blessed in our own days. And finally, of course, the point of this teaching is to recognize that the worst things get in the world, at the very, in the very worst case, all it means is that the second coming is around the corner. So with that, let me uh, close out the show with playing that beautiful Come Lord Jesus hymn from Harpa Dei. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.